Hi there, you're listening to Incorruptible Massachusetts. Our goal is to help people understand state politics. So we investigate why it is so broken. We imagine what we could have if we fixed it. And uh, we report on how you can get involved. So last week, we mentioned that lobbying is maybe not as effective as we think it is. And yet we keep saying over and over that we need an engaged electorate. So what does that mean, right? How are we supposed to engage with our state reps if it's not their lobbying? That is the focus of this episode. And we have a special guest who is gonna talk about her experiences uh, in doing that. So uh, I'm gonna introduce, of course, as always, we have uh, the incredible uh, Jordan Bergbowers and Jonathan Cohn. If you guys wanna introduce yourselves and then I'll introduce our special guest as well. Uh, my name is Jordan, I, have, I use he, him, and I have 11 years experience in progressive politics in Massachusetts. Uh, Jonathan Cohn, also he, him, based out of Boston, I've been working on electoral and issue campaigns uh, here in Boston and kind of across Massachusetts since 2013. I am Anna Callahan, she, her, um, here in Medford, and uh, you know, very interested in all of this good stuff in Massachusetts politics. Uh, we have uh, City Council, Medford City Councilor Nicole Morell here with us live. And Nicole, if you would uh, give us a little intro on yourself. Sure. Thanks so much for having me. So I am Nicole Morell. I use she, her. I am a first term city councilor in Medford. I am rounding out, rounding out my first term about a year and a half in, and it's been a wild ride. I'm running for re-election. And um, part of the reason I'm here is I was endorsed and um, ran with a progressive slate, um, our evolution in Medford, that um, did a lot of work in the campaigning and has continued to be very active. Part of the commitment to the slate is continuing to engage with the group itself and being involved with the group. Um, so here to talk about that today. Fantastic. Um, great. So I want to kick this off by telling a little bit about my work with Gail McLaughlin from the Richmond Progressive Alliance. So for the last few years, I've trained people around the country in this kind of different model of political organizing that I learned from the Richmond Progressive Alliance. This is a group in Richmond, California, that essentially took over their city council, right? So the city of Richmond was owned by Chevron for many, many years. They literally had a desk inside city hall. They paid into the campaign coffers of every single elected official and they got what they wanted. And the city was very troubled, um, had terrible police brutality problems, very low wages compared to nearby cities. Uh, and you know, every five years there'd be an explosion or a spill uh, from the oil refinery that would send people to the hospital and destroy the environment um, and many, many other problems. And essentially in 2003, the Richmond Progressive Alliance put together a coalition. They ran a slate of candidates and they pretty quickly got a majority and then a super majority on the city council plus the mayor. And they started passing progressive policies like you would not believe um, some amazing, amazing policies. The first rent control bill in the state of California in 30 years um, totally turned around their police force. Um, they, uh, you know, managed to get $100 million in new taxes from Chevron, uh, the oil refinery, uh, and, and many other things, some like wildly, deeply progressive uh, issues that they passed. So one of the things that I did when I, when I started working with them was I asked Gail, because they're, 
their electoral prowess is obvious, but their ability to keep their city councilors and mayors totally aligned and not stepping one toe outside of the platform of the Richmond Progressive Alliance, that to me was maybe more, even more impressive, right, than their, than their ability to just win elections. So I sat down with Gail McLaughlin and I asked her how this happened and how they did that. And what I was told is that their basic approach is that if, if you don't support your city councilors, then, and if you just walk away, you elect them and you walk away, then you have to expect that, you know, they're going to get contacted by lobbyists. The other side is going to reach out to them. They're going to provide these beautiful, colorful, researched, you know, graphics and reports and everything. And of course, they're going to end up, you know, going to the other side eventually because they don't have the support. No one person can do, can know everything about every issue and can provide the support that they need. So the Richmond Progressive Alliance provides a team of people for each city councilor that meets with them before every city council meeting to go over the packet, which can be hundreds of pages, um, to read through it, to provide input, to help them, that city councilor understand um, how they should respond, what they should say, how they should vote, to reach out to coalition partners um, so that they can strategize around what's happening at the city council and how they can, uh, together as a coalition, get the policies that they want passed. Um, super inspiring to me and just change the way that I think about, um, about how constituents interact with elected officials. Um, now, I know that in Medford, you guys um, have really kind of followed this model very closely um, and done an amazing job. And, I would love to hear, Nicole, from you um, about the kind of support that you get uh, from OR Medford, as well as uh, what, you know, how you guys work together to get policies passed. Definitely. And I, of course, have to thank you for sharing this model with us. Uh, you're, you're who got it to us in the first place. So thank you. Um, I mean, there was, there, um, support is is so needed and so necessary because I think um, we, we don't have a majority on the council just yet. So um, it, it's even um, the conversation can be quickly controlled by the other five counselors, which is, is going to happen. And, and what you're trying to push forward can get lost in the shuffle. So having that support um, from OR Medford that we can go back to and we can talk about what issues we're really focused on, what issues we can feasibly pass, what issues we want to raise. Um, and that really matters because you have those um, people who are already engaged, who are already following, um, who are kind of, you know, keeping you honest, um, but also just letting you know um, you're you're not alone. Because I think in a lot of these, um, a lot of cities, there tends to be the same people that come out to city council meetings every week and they speak every week, and that can make you think, oh, this is this is how people feel. You know, these five people that come out every week, this must be how everyone feels, and, and I've got to do, um, you know, make sure my my what I'm trying to do matches to what they want. Um, when in reality, there's a lot of people who. Um, they don't have the time to come out to city council meetings. They don't have the bandwidth. They don't have the childcare. Anything else, and just having that 
two-way conversation, having that two-way street um, with ORM effort and be able to keep those conversations going is, is so important um, to stay on your platform, to stay on the issues um, that you get elected for and to really work for them, even if the people that are physically at these meetings um, you know, might disagree with you. Um, there's a much larger group that, that does agree with you and wants to see um, what you ran on actually be moved forward. Jordan, do you see this kind of thing happening in state politics? Yeah. So there's just, this isn't just anecdotally true. We know this to be true from some of the data. The University of Michigan a few years ago, I think it was in 2006, started a study where they asked every, um, they asked any state rep, any state senator to, um, to like, how, where do you think your electorate is on any one issue? And then they polled those people on those issues and they found that Democrats and Republicans overestimated how conservative their districts are anywhere from double to like a third more in every instance. They've now replicated that model every couple of years. They've moved it down to city councils. They've moved it to, um, to uh, the congressional races and across every level of government we find that elected officials overestimate how conservative their electorates are to be more conservative. And so the University of North Carolina, again, um, piling on top because now other universities have sort of either um, done their own replicas of this or done their own sort of studies of this. They wanted to figure out why is that? Why is it that people are overestimating how conservative their districts are? And what they found were that the people who were likely to contact their elected officials on a regular basis were much more older than the regular um, than the than the um, than the people that they're representing. Much whiter, much more affluent, much more likely to hold conservative values. So the fact is that the people who are in contact regularly with their elected governments tend to be those people. On top of that, you know, not wrongly so, most city councils, most school committees, most local governments are focused on some of the big people in the towns. Who are those people? Those tend to be people with capital, tend to be people with wealth, tend to be people who own big businesses in town, right? They're regularly talking to those people. I'll give you an example here in the city of Worcester where I live. Our city manager meets with the Chamber of Commerce every, every week. Right? That's something he proudly says. But there's no, because he's an unelected position, he's literally never talking to regular people. He's never in communication with those regular people. And even if you're an elected official, you maybe are talking to them every two years, maybe if you have a challenger, but likely not. So our, who we hear from starts to become our reality. Even the best intentioned city councilors can be, a, can, you know, can't, it's, not a, it's not their fault that you start to feel if you're awash in one type of language, one type of thought, one type of bent towards your thing. It's hard to hear anything else or see anything else. It starts to warp your sense of reality. Can I quickly chime in here? I do want to hear more from kind of what Nicole's saying uh, in one sec, but this actually just reminded me of how, um, uh, uh, and this, is, this isn't as deep as that, but when it comes to, let's say, the community meetings, which do are, end up being very skewed in who attends, is if you can just get like a few other people who are kind of a, a, holding a different opinion than, than some of the regulars to go, it can be valuable in simply representing an issue as contested as opposed to completely on the other, uh, on kind of on that side. It just reminds me of having kind of organized against Boston's Olympic bid uh, back in like say 2014, 2015. One of our goals was just making sure that no like community meeting about, about the bid could ever be discussed as like the crowd was all in favor of it. And just making sure that you have off like kind of 
and, and it's something that you can see that all the time about how people use it, that, that, that dynamic to, to not great ends locally in <laughs> many um, cases, but you really, but it really does, that you can really shape perception. And that, and, and then you can see because of how easy that it can be, be whether, whether, whether you are in line, and we were in many ways aligned with popular opinion there, or just kind of misaligned with popular opinion, presence or absence of these really can shape politicians. So it does kind of speak, what you're saying is how it can start shaping how people think if there aren't other pressures as well. Yeah, Nicole, can you um, take, can you give us any examples of ways in which like a revolution has maybe worked with the city councilors to help things either, you know, get passed or help um, bring out the, the maybe the, the silent um, majority of what people in Medford think? Definitely. I mean, I think just paying close attention to the agendas um, and, and reaching out to um, us counselors as well, just sometimes being like, can you let us know what's a hot topic too? Because some things that may look like a hot topic actually aren't, and some things that look totally, you know, <laughs> nothing burger are, are going to explode. Um, so really letting um, letting our evolution know just kind of like these are the issues that we really you know um need people to come out for and i think sometimes you know medford can be very much a small town where sometimes we might get word that like okay a ton of people are going to be coming out for this issue on tuesday and letting people know that um we are in a very strange place right now where people are allowed to come to meetings in person but it you know it really depends on comfort level so some of a lot of our people tend to stay on zoom so there's this really weird skewed thing happening where there are people coming in person on one side and people staying on Zoom on the other side. And I think it goes back to that perception issue of just, you know, people in front of your face kind of yelling at you, you go, okay, this is the majority of people when it's actually, you know, it may be people on Zoom, it may be people not attending that meeting. So I think now as we transition into that weird space, um, again, engaging with OR to just be like, you know, if you could hop on Zoom for a little bit to talk about this, if it matters to you, um, we're entering budget season. I mean, that tends to, um, bring people out in a way it never used to. So I think people are keenly watching the budget and just letting, you know, immediately, as soon as we get the budget, you know, it's, it's public record, it's public information, you know, just getting it out to those lists to say, here's the budget, you know, I'm reading it this weekend. Let's take some time to read it this weekend and, and see what people are passionate about. Yeah, and, and I've heard, I hear you kind of say that like as a city councilor, it means a lot to you, not just from a policy perspective, but but sort of emotionally supportive perspective that you have a group of people that you can trust with your ideas of how to pass, to strategize around how to get policies passed. Would you say that that's, that's a helpful part of it? It, it, I mean, it really is. I mean, this is an incredibly, um, it's a taxing job. Like, you know, I, I come from a lot of place of privilege that I can do it, but it can, it's a job that, you know, local politics is brutal. Um, so just having that support system to come back with, you know, if you have a meeting where the only people who come out in person oppose you, you start to think like, maybe it's me, maybe I'm nuts. And then you, you know, <laughs> going, you know, having those conversations after and people saying, you know, no, please keep pushing this. I, I, I agree with you. That, that helps tremendously. It reinvigorates you um, and it keeps you focused on the work that you're there to do. Yeah, I want to just turn for a moment back to state politics with this particular issue, because we have talked in, in prior uh, podcasts about the, the, the inability of, um, of progressive legislators to trust each other in this toxic work environment that there is there. 
any thoughts from uh, from our, my regulars about uh, sort of how this, like, if we had a trusted outside group of people that legislators could meet with, strategize with, like come up with, and if it was more than just one legislator, they could all sort of trust each other. Would that make a difference, do you think? I think not only would it make a difference, but I think the other part is the ecosystem that Nicole is describing around it. So that there's, there's, you know, there's both an understanding that there's gonna be somebody there, but also that you're always in contact, you're always in community, you're always working with those folks. Um, you know, one of the things that happens is we do sort of sort of um, drop them off. But the other side of it is that a lot of times um, elected officials aren't coming from our movements. They're not coming from the places where, you know, they're, they're embedded. So they don't feel that same allegiance to our, to our people um, when, they, when, when they get elected. They sort of just go off, right? They just go there and then we like hope for the best. Um, and so there isn't that same level of, of, uh, of sort of commitment to and a part of, um, you know, it's one of the things I will say, honestly, that I've noticed that the labor movement has started to try to do a better job of and has gotten better at because they for so long were sending so many people to the state, um, to the state house who were then, you know, voting against uh, giving, making sure that labor had rights, right? So you're seeing that that's a move different for them and you know i'd say it's great that labor is doing that we need that desperately our state is not as good on labor as it should be um and my goal is to do that yes and right to have more folks invested that same way that they're um growing people who are dedicated to labor we need to be doing the same thing dedicated to all issues across the progressive left including and i would say importantly labor yeah so i want to bring in another related topic here which is this idea of an engaged electorate. Like people often think that what that means is that we register people to vote, right? Um, and, and I like having seen what this means in Medford, having you know talked to Gail about what that means in Richmond um, and even seeing it on my own campaign, like what it means to have an engaged electorate is that everyone ups their game. So people who are unregistered register. People who vote maybe only in the presidential general election, they start voting in state and municipal elections. People who vote in all those elections, they start getting engaged in organizations that understand that what we do is not just vote, but we have to take actions. And those people who are already engaged in those organizations, they can become the, the sort of adjunct staff almost of these elected officials who truly are on our side and come from our movements. And when we lift the level, raise the level of everyone's engagement, um, then some of those people are also dedicated to sort of building up from the bottom. Um, and that's when you, you get a truly engaged electorate. I, I kind of saw this on my own campaign, like after my campaign was over, I had a solid half a dozen, you know, half a dozen to a dozen people who, even though I lost, <laughs> continued to work together every week on, in our district on the stuff that we would have worked on if I had won. And that was when I lost. Right? So having these people who were just dedicated to the idea of engaging the electorate, of um, bringing more people into the process, uh, helping people understand the state house, uh, activating people on the issues um, that can that can really happen both in organizations, 
um, as well as for candidates. And I know Jordan, you've talked about how people get activated on issues. Yeah, I mean, again, what we know from the research is that people don't, you know, God, one of the things we think happens is we tend to think, oh, I'm inspired by this elected official. So like everybody else will be inspired by them. But for most people, they're just another talking head uh, that they just don't trust that much or, you know, you know, whatever reason. So I like, I, I wish, I, I, I always hope that our electorate is suspicious of politicians. I never want us <laughs> to treat our, um, our elected officials the way, unfortunately, a lot of people treat Donald Trump, right? I think that there should be a healthy skepticism of people with power, um, or at least a consistent need for them to have to reaffirm that they're in dem democratic relationship, right? Like, I think that that's an important um, ethos. So I actually am fine with the fact that people are suspicious, but that means that actually politicians are terrible ways to get people who aren't already engaged, engaged in politics. Yes, you will get a few inspiring people here and there who will bring some people at the edges, but by and large, people are activated around issues. They're activated around the things that matter to their lives and they're activated to, um, and that's how you get people in into the political processes through the issues, through the things that affect their lives, through somebody saying that we care about you, we want you to be a part of this fight. So you need organizations that are dedicated to those issues, consistently talking to them on a regular basis. And that's how you bring people in. And that's what's great about creating, an, um, again, a community like this is not referential person. It's referential around the things we want to do to make people's lives better. And it's in constant communication with one another. It does help you sort of bring in more folks. And we know this from the data that people are, you know, if you want to get somebody who doesn't currently vote to go vote, you need to engage with them on issues over a long period of time on a consistent basis and let them know that you're going to continue to ask them to be involved, even though they're not currently voting. That's how you get them to go vote. Yeah, Nicole, you want to say a word about the, the People's Platform? Definitely. And I, mean, I think, you know, uh, our evolution comes out with the People's Platform um, for really any, anyone can sign on to it, but it's also the idea as the um, hoping to be endorsed uh, candidates do sign on a, to that. And I think that's definitely a way we bring people in is people just learn about the issues. I think part of it at the local level is just educating people about what the issues are and what is possible at the local level, what we actually have control over. So I think um, engaging people around those topics is really important and people are very um, empowered by those topics and then it becomes okay and, and who are the candidates that support this and I'll, I'll, I'll support them because I support these ideals. Um, I will say I agree with you Jordan there is um, we did have a lot of people come out um, not because they were super excited about elected officials but because they were so mad about certain elected officials that we actually did get um, you know our evolution actually did kind of swell this past summer with some behavior by certain elected officials in the area that really drew people to us that they were so mad they were like I got to do something about this so definitely issues and then you know maybe bad behavior sometimes helps. There's Jonathan plenty of that you, to go around. Yeah, that's for sure. I know. Uh, Jonathan, you got some. Uh, yeah, one last minute ago, because Nicole, you're talking about budget season, which reminded me as well of when it comes to the relationship of kind of actors or constituents and elected officials. Is that like if you get to take a budget document or some long piece of legislation, it takes a lot of time to get through it and figure out all that's in it, and like. The things are long enough so that even if you read it once, you probably like missed something just because like it's, it's just a lot to digest. And it takes to the values of having kind of those structures where you can have people who have 
that have that continuing relationship on the outside who will look at and, and kind of be able to kind of spot if they can spot something that looks like a red flag some somewhere somewhere in it in case it like somebody is trying to get something less than great through uh somewhat like innocuous legislation that you have people who, who are able to help to spot that or help spot things that are worth questioning etc just because it's, it's hard for any one person to do that well without without a structure both within a legislative body and with those on the outside and at the state house even works right because mm-hmm. yeah. there's there are these incredibly tight timelines where a bill will come out it's a thousand pages long yep. and they have what two days to a day yeah. <laughs> one day two days <laughs> try like the afternoon they'll sometimes <laughs> release it in the morning there's yeah. so you know the the like you know the um there was a there was a bill on energy that they that was thousands of pages that they released at nine a.m. and then voted on at noon, uh, and then the it is crazy. Legislators were like, "Oh, we didn't even you know." The the advocates were arguing about whether or not to vote for it, and then the people were arguing about whether or not to vote for it. And in fairness, because no one knew, you're trying to read how. That's right. We can't even know because we don't even have time to read the bills. So I, I thank you so much, Nicole. It's been amazing having you here. Um, I just love the work that the incredible work that you guys are doing in Bedford. Um, and you know, I want us all to imagine what would happen if we had a, a trusted coalition of partners statewide that ran a slate of candidates um, in our state house where those candidates felt like they could really trust the organization and strategize together um, to figure out how to pass our policies that we want, that we all want, need, and deserve. Um, Thanks so much. We'll see everybody next week. Bye.